So, we are in Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. And this is a great portion. This is so exciting. I love this stuff. This for me, for me, this is a, a labor of love. I mean, I love preparing for this. All week, I prepare for this study. All week. And it's a labor of love. It's not like, oh boy, i got to prepare this thing. It's like, wow, I get to prepare this. And, and to take the Word of God. So I love this. So, you might remember we covered last time in, in Genesis chapter 50 was the burial of Jacob by Joseph and his brothers. And, and there was the, the entire retinue that went with them into the land of Canaan. So we'll start reading at verse 7 of Genesis chapter 50. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. They left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds and the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the Canaanites, the inhabitants, now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of Machpelah before Mambre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So you may recall that uh, there, was, there were uh, 40 days it took to embalm Jacob. And during that 40 days, there were 70 days of, of uh, mourning in Egypt. After that time, they went into the land of Canaan. Now, what's interesting about this, uh, Mike, can you put it on speaker view? And uh, so, so they, they, um, they came into the land of, of, they went to the land of Canaan. But it's interesting, it says in verse 10, so remember, there's chariots and horsemen with them and, and all the, these leaders within, within, uh, within uh, Egypt went. And it says in verse 10, And they came to the threshing floor of Atad. Nobody knows exactly where Atad is, which is beyond the Jordan. So it says beyond the Jordan. Generally, when they're in the land of Canaan and you speak beyond the Jordan, that means east of the Jordan River, where the current day nation of Jordan is, that's sometimes referred to as the Transjordan on the other side, as opposed to the Cisjordan on the, on the Israel side. But here it says that that's beyond the Jordan. And again, it uses the same expression at the end of verse 11, beyond the Jordan. So some commentators think that when they went into Egypt, they stayed south, they went under the Dead Sea, up into the Transjordan, and they wept there, then came across the Jordan, came into Hebron. Uh, other commentators say, no, they must have gone through the land of Canaan, and for some reason they're calling it beyond the Jordan 
from the perspective of where they were because it says in verse 11, when the Canaanites saw them at the threshing floor of Atad. So in other words, the Canaanites lived on the east side of the Jordan. They were not on the west side of the Jordan. So there's there's some difference in opinion, but it doesn't matter. They came into the land and they did bury him exactly where he had to be. And you can go and visit that site today. I've been there. You can go and visit that site today and see where they they buried uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives. uh, and so you, you can you can uh, you can see that even today. All right. So then we get down into verse twelve and thirteen, where they 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 conducted the burial, and then they come back. And we're going to pick it up in verse fifteen, uh, because that's that's really where the the heart of what I want to get at today. Verse fifteen of Genesis chapter fifty. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Our father charged before he died, saying, I pray, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and for your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is such a picture of Jesus. I mean, when we come to him, just this amazing, amazing kindness that's being displayed here. So his brothers now are worried. Now that their father has died, they're worried that now their intercessor, their protector between them and Joseph, who is still very much ruling this land, and we know that this is, this is 12 years after the end of the famine. But Joseph is still ruling and, and, and controlling in, in Pharaoh's house. And we know this because such a large retinue went with him into the land of Canaan. The chariots and horsemen and all the leaders in the, in the household of Pharaoh, it says, went with him. So he's still very much in charge. Now that's going to be changing. But for right now, 12 years after the famine, this, he's still very much in charge. Now this is 39 years after his brothers had sold him into slavery. 39 years. And we know that because Joseph at this age is 56, because it says, it says in, uh, um, in, in well, we, we've calculated that before, but it, it's really very simple that he's 56, because it was 39, he was 39 when his father came into the land, plus 17 would make him 56. And, and uh, 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 Joseph was, was 56 at the time. And now if you take 56 and you subtract 17, you get back to 39 years because he was 17 when his brothers did, did this to him. So this is 39 years, maybe 40 years by the time you had four or five months of the mourning and going into the land of Canaan, which is 30 days, coming back, which is another 30 days, plus they spent seven days there. So it's about 40 years since his brothers did this to him, but they're still not over this. They're still worried what Joseph is going to do to them for their selling him into slavery 
40 years earlier. And this is what guilt does. Guilt does this sort of thing. Guilt never really gets, gets past us. This, when we walk with guilt in our hearts, we never really get past all of this. And it's, it's really good to deal with these things. I've given this example before. Let me give it again. You know, I have a, I have a pair of pliers that say on the pliers, inscribed in the pliers, it says, John Seow. John was one of my many roommates, one of my many housemates in college. And I had a pair of pliers of his and in my toolbox. And when I left my undergraduate, I took my toolbox, and I knew those pliers were in there. They're, they're all busted up pliers. They're loose. You know, they're not even firm or anything. And I took them with me. Well, I was so convicted by that. About a year after I had taken them, I bought a brand new pair of Craftsman pliers, much better, much better than those. And I sent those along with $10 to John Seal. Now, this was, this was almost 40 years ago that I sent these back to him. And, uh, um, and I mailed it to him. And now, whenever I pick up these pliers that say John Seal, it doesn't bother me a bit. It used to bother me that these belonged to one of my housemates from college, but now it doesn't bother me because I made restitution. I dealt with it, I, I, and I apologized to, them, to him in that letter when I mailed it to him. And uh, so, so uh, um, uh, guilt carries with you when you haven't really dealt with it. And so that they, they, some commentators think that this was a fictitious letter. It kind of sounds fictitious, that they just wrote this in their father's name, other commentators said, you know, we don't have any indication of this. You know, good historians don't like to write a lot into between the words of the Bible. We need to be careful not to write too much. Whatever we write between the lines, we have to say we're not sure. You know, we, we can infer anything we want, but we, we don't want to teach it as if, you know, that's, that's the words of the Bible. So we don't know for sure. But they, they say, uh, so they, in verse 16, so they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died, saying, dad said this. He charged, meaning that he charged this. And he says, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and the sin for what they did wrong. Now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. This word, please, uh, in the literal sense, it means I pray thee. And that's the expression that they would use, but that is the little, literal translation of the Hebrew, I pray thee, uh, which translated in, into English is please. Now, would you say that, that, that Jacob would be saying please to his son Joseph? Well, actually, you know, I was reminded back in, 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 uh, in, in chapter, chapter 47 when Jacob is imploring his son to bury him in the land of Canaan, Jacob says to his son in verse 29 of chapter 47, it says, When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, Please, the literal translation, I pray thee, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please, or I pray thee, I pray thee, do not bury me in Egypt. So his father did say to him, please. Now, I have showed you examples where God spoke and he would use these words with his beloved ones as well. He would say to his beloved ones, I pray thee, please. So it's not totally out of context for his father to use that type of language. 
uh, uh, with Joseph. And he says, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when, he, when they spoke to him. Joseph wept when they came repentant to him. He wept. He, he was just overwhelmed. Again, this man was so sensitive for something that they had done 40 years earlier. Something that they had done 40 years earlier. He was, he was still weeping about this thing when they came to him in repentance. You see how soft his heart was toward his brothers. I mean, this is just like Jesus. You know, sometimes we don't get over the sin that we've committed. And we go back to him again and we, we remind him, we say, Lord, thank you so much for having forgiven me. Thank you so much for that. And I'll tell you, one of the verses that I always share when I'm doing evangelism, one of the verses that I always share in, in evangelism is out of Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25. And the reason, one of the reasons I always share this is I've studied the method by which Charles Spurgeon and George Whitfield did evangelism because I wanted to learn from the experts. And Charles Spurgeon said this verse, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, is the most powerful verse in evangelism. If that guy says that, I'm going to take heed of that and use it in my evangelistic sharing. Isaiah 43, verse 25. And I have seen this over and over again when I'm sharing with people. I say, now read this verse. And they look at, they look at the word and they start reading it. And then I see a, the, their eyes start to begin to fill with, with tears. This verse is so powerful. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I, I will not remember your sins. I will not remember your sins. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so you see how powerful this is. This is I, even I. This is God speaking. I, even I. God is saying, this is me. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And when people see that, where God says, I will not remember your sins, Boom, the tears in their eye. As soon as I see that tear in their eye, I know that they're about to get saved. I know that that very sitting there about within minutes, they will be transported into the kingdom of light. When people realize that God says, I will not remember your sins, because we remember our sins. We remember all the things that we've done. I remember my sins when I was a boy. God says, I will not remember your sins. And for God, that means he chooses not to act upon it. I will not remember your sins. And then he says, I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I explain it this way to the unbelievers. And the people who really get hit by this are the older people. People who are older and they look over their lives and they think, this is too kind of a salvation. After all I've done... How could God forgive me so quickly, so readily? Younger people don't, don't have this impression upon them yet because they still think they're kind of pretty good. Older people know what's accumulated in their lives. They're just like Joseph's brothers that 40 years ago they committed acts of sin and it's still with them. And God says, 
I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. And I liken it to this, and this is exactly how I explain it to them. I have four children. If one of my children were to be in jail, I would immediately go and bail them out. And even if they said to me, Dad, for what I've done, I deserve to be here. I would say, if it is in my power to get you out, I'm going to get you out of here. I will mortgage my home to get you out of here if I have to. I will do whatever is in my power to get you out of here. We can deal with these other things later, but I'm getting you out of here. This is exactly what God does. He says, it is in my power to wipe out your transgressions for my own sake. I am getting you out of this jail for my own sake, even though you want to be here. Because you feel you're... I'm getting you out for my own sake. This is what God does. You see the interceding hand of God in this scriptural text. This intercession where it says, for my own sake, you feel... You feel too, too sinful to, to have this. You feel too sinful. For my own sake, I'm doing this. I'm doing this for my own sake. I'm going to get you out of here. For my own sake. And so you see that, that back in, in Genesis, he weeps when they speak to him. It says in, in the end of verse 17, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Jesus wants so much for us to receive his forgiveness. He wants so much for us to receive His forgiveness. He's yearning. And we come to Him. And Jesus, Jesus is like, just, you are welcome to come. You are absolutely welcome to come. Then His brothers came. So they sent the message. It says in verse 16, they sent the message. So remember, they're in Goshen. He's the bigger city. We don't know how far, maybe 50 miles or something. And they send a messenger. Because they're afraid to appear before him, but they sent this by a messenger. When he gives a favorable response, uh, uh, then they come and they fall before him and they say, behold, we are your servants. Now, probably Benjamin wasn't among them because Benjamin was only around 11 years old when when, uh, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery. He had nothing to do with this. These were the other 10 brothers. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Who am I to hold a grudge against you? Am I in God's place? Who am I? And, and uh, uh, Jesus reminds us of this. When you, when you think of the Lord's Prayer in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 15, is what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is actually not the Lord's Prayer Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray. He says, this is how you ought to pray. This was the Lord's Prayer for us, not for him. But we call it the Lord's Prayer. And one of the portions in that is, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Anytime you proclaim what we term the Lord's Prayer, you say, forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Have any of you ever prayed that prayer or said that out loud? Is there anyone here who has not said that out loud? Okay, so you're all under condemnation then. If, as it says in verse 14 of John chapter, chapter, uh, of Matthew chapter 6, verse, verse 12 says, and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And verse 14 says, for if you will not forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also, 
so if, if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. If we do not forgive, our Father would not forgive our transgressions. And we might think, well, that's kind of hard. Well, that's exactly what you asked for. You just prayed, forgive us our debts as we forget our as we have forgiven our debtors. And God says, okay, okay. The exact way that we forgive others is how we shall be forgiven. If we hold grudges against others and fail to walk in forgiveness, God will not forgive us. This was not to the unbeliever. This was very much to the believers. This was to his disciples he prayed this. He he commanded this. And he said, for if... You forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Oh, I urge you, I urge you, learn to walk in forgiveness. Learn to walk in forgiveness. That doesn't mean that you need to make those people your best friend. But it does mean that you have to lay this down in your heart. And very often that means that we need to pray, Lord, Work on my heart. I hold this. I hold this against this person who hurt me so badly. And it's not me who's who's instructing you to do this. It's not me. Let me remind you who is instructing you to do this. Look in Luke chapter chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Verse 33. Luke chapter 23. Verse 33. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. How many people listening to this Bible study have been crucified? Oh, none. Okay. Well, they did more to Jesus than they've done to you. Jesus has gone through more than we have gone through. Jesus was crucified. They crucified him. But Jesus was saying in verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. And the people stood looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ. And the soldiers also mocked him. Look at what they did to Jesus. And the one who cries out in the midst of that and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. How could they not know what they are doing? These men, with intent, crucified him. These leaders, with intent, cried out for his crucifixion. And Jesus said, they don't know what they're doing. It is him, it is this very Jesus, who cries out and says, if you don't forgive, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. We cannot hold grudges against others. We have to let these things down. And it's not me asking you. It is not me commanding you. It is him who was crucified and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what, what, what they're doing. It is him who tells us about this. And then he goes on to say, let's look back in, in, uh, in verse, in, in chapter 50 of Genesis. He says in verse 19, but Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place? He says, who am I? It's not in my place to not forgive you. Am I in God's place? I mean, look at the beautiful picture. Who do we think we are? That we can hold something against somebody. We have to let this thing go. You say, well, he stole all my money. Okay, well, don't don't make your money available to him next time. You don't have to make him your friend. 
But you have to lay this thing down. You have to lay it down. Because God says if we don't, He won't forgive us. Then he goes on to say, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. You meant evil, but God meant it for good. I mean, what a perspective. I was sold into slavery. My hands, my feet were in fetters, as it's written about Joseph in, 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 in the book of Psalms. He was in fetters. Then he's sold as a slave. There's an accusation against him. And now we see why there's no reference of him ever going back after Potiphar's wife who had him thrown in prison. Never any reference of him going back and dealing with Potiphar for putting him in prison on a false accusation. There's never any reference of him coming against his brothers in a mean way. Never. Never. This is a picture, a picture of Jesus. And he says, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Look at how he looks at this. And you say, this is, this is the duality of man's will versus God's sovereignty. Man's will was to sell him into slavery, and God's sovereignty was, I'm going to save a lot of life through this. You say, well, what if they had not sold him into slavery? God would have saved a lot of life another way. It is so hard for people, for human beings, to understand Man's free will and God's sovereignty over all of it. Man has a free will, but it's sort of a confined free will. It's like a three-year-old in your home. You can go anywhere you want in this home, but you can't go outside. I mean, the the three-year-old has a free will, but there's a limit on that. There's a limit on that. And and there's this this tremendous sense that, that God is overall, if you look in, in Romans, the book of Romans chapter 9, which is this whole portion on sovereignty, God's sovereignty. Romans chapter 9 verse 16 said, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but God who has mercy. God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. You say, well, what if they didn't sell Joseph into slavery? God would have worked it out. You, you got you to gotta, you dream with me now. Look, there's something called quantum computing. Quantum computing can, can put these bits, these spin states, into these vast numbers of arrays. God knows everything. It's like, if you understand something about quantum computing, you just, you just have huge amounts of, of nodes of information. God knows everything, and you think because this person has moved this chess piece in life, that now God's plan, God's sovereign plan is thwarted? No way! No way! God's got a gazillion methods of taking your move and funneling that back into His will. Yes, it will affect your life because that move, but it won't affect God's plan. God is absolutely sovereign. And when you have a quantum computer playing chess, There'll be a million steps in front of you, no matter what chess piece you move. That's like it is with God. He will just, He will just take it and He'll move it around. That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, this famous portion, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And we know that. We absolutely know. This is 
Paul says, look, for me, this is not speculation. We absolutely know this. This we absolutely know. God causes all things to work together for good. He causes all things. That means God can manipulate the whole thing. These guys sold their brother into slavery and God worked it together for good. And what he did in the midst of that, he taught Joseph many things through that suffering. We absolutely learn through the suffering of the experience. God's will will never, ever, ever be thwarted. You cannot thwart God's will. You may mess up your own life, but God's overall will, boom, He caused it to work together for good. He will turn this whole thing. God can do anything. He is so big. And in our finite little minds, we think, uh-oh, that person... Did... Now God's really in a fix. How's He going to work? God's not in a fix at all. Not at all. He's got all these cubits hanging out that know exactly where to turn these things and He'll just funnel it right back into what He does and He'll take His people, whom He loves, and He'll work it together for good in their lives and He'll teach them through this. God is not hindered by this in any way. That's why Joseph can say, Joseph, uh, Joseph can say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. God just, boom, He causes this to work together for good. He took this gross evil of what they did to their brother and He worked it out for good. If they had killed Joseph, God's will would not have been thwarted. He would have done it another way. He absolutely, God can do anything, anything. He says God causes all things, all things, not just one thing, not just this thing with Joseph, all things to work together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to His purpose. There are things that hit us all the time in life, all the time. And we say, God, please work good out of this. This is so hard and so painful. Lord, work good out of this. No problem. <laughs> You've come to the right place. <laughs> no problem for me. No problem for God. You meant it for evil. God means it for good. He meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Many people. The whole land of Egypt was preserved alive as, much, as well as much of the land of Canaan because people were coming from all these foreign places to buy food in Egypt. He had a plan to preserve people alive and his plan was not thwarted. God's plan is not thwarted. I want to speak now to the unbelievers if you do not know God, remember, it is this, this God to whom we come. Look what Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 21. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is Jesus, the picture of Jesus. Jesus just speaks kindly to us. Come to him. He just speaks kindly he speaks so kindly to us. And He just comforts us. He says, look, I'll take care of you. And I'll take care of your children. I'll take care of everybody who means something to you. I'll take care of them. I'll provide for them. And, and uh, uh, He says, I'll provide for you. I'll comfort you. And He just speaks so tenderly, so kindly to us. This is the picture of Jesus. That's why Jesus says, come unto me. 
Come unto me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you, for I am gentle and humble in spirit. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. I mean, look at the humility in this. He says, come to me. This is the message of the cross. The message of the gospel is this. Come unto me. Come unto me. Jesus says, this day, come unto me. Come unto me this day. That's what Jesus says. He says, come unto me this day. Come unto me. That's the message of the gospel, the message of the cross. If you don't know the Lord, I urge you this day, and it is so simple. You just proclaim, Lord Jesus, you are Lord. And I believe that you have risen from the dead and you will be saved. It says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And just remember, whatever you go through, whatever the situation, God can cause it to work together for good. Lord Take this mess and cause it to work together for good, I pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank and I praise you. You are so good. Thank you for modeling through the life of Joseph what the life of Jesus is like. He speaks comfort. He forgives us. And that, Lord, you come and you forgive our transgressions for your own sake. And you choose not to remember our sins. Lord, thank you for the truth of that verse. Thank you, Lord, how we learn how to forgive. Lord, I pray for those on this call, for those in this room that have held grudges against others, that have chosen not to forgive another for whatever reason. Lord, I pray thee that they would listen to your commandment and follow your example. Him who was on a cross with nails in his hands and his feet being mocked and being cursed at and having his only possession, his garments, being bitted upon by those who had crucified him. And he looks down from the cross and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, I pray that you would cause them this day to walk in forgiveness toward those who have come against them. Let them walk in forgiveness. Lord, bless them, I pray, and draw your people close to your Son through the Word of God. In the name of Jesus.